Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 9 this morning. It's page 1006 if you're borrowing a Bible from us this morning. There are many around the world this morning who, as they look to the future, look to the future with an expectation of reincarnation. Maybe a a better life to come, maybe a worse life to come, but whatever to come based on their performance in this life. And then a life after that, and a life after that. Others are looking ahead to nothing, even in our day and in the West, a materialistic view of the world, that all that is, is the material world. If you can taste it, touch it, see it, smell it, it exists. If you can't, it doesn't. So you and I are just bags of cells and atoms in motion, and when we die, we're done forgotten and gone. Well, rightly, over the last number of weeks in the book of Hebrews, we've been emphasizing all that is ours now, a purified conscience for the worship of God, really is ours right now. But is there more to it? Is this it? What are we waiting for? Let's read now from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water of scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to enter, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. There are some things that we wait on that are fairly certain. At our house, it's the, it's the Amazon package. Uh, some members of our household are looking forward to the, the toilet paper and the towels and the cleaning supplies. And, you know, I might be waiting for a book or a gift. Hopefully, it arrives on time for that birthday. Um, the kids are always excited to see a, a box and, and to know who, who it goes, not the older ones, the little ones, to embarrass them. The older ones are not excited about the boxes, they're over it. But the little ones like to know who it's for, and then when I come home from work, there's an announcement that, that a package has come for me, and I get, I get shown to the package. And uh, as sure as I click buy, I, I don't all know what goes on between click and arrival, but it's pretty certain. I could track it. I'd track it to where it is in town almost. It's arrived at this center. It's arrived here. I get a receipt telling me it's arrived at my house. I don't really even think about it. Email is a pretty certain thing. Someone sends you an email, it's almost certainly going to come through, or else they'll get some type of error, which is an indication that the, they've had the wrong address or something. Some things we wait on are are fairly certain. Some of them instant, some of them take maybe a few days. Some, some are uncertain. Maybe it's waiting on a spouse. Uh, not waiting on a spouse this morning on the way to church. That's certain. It's just not certain how long it will take. Um, that's no dig in one direction or another. Every couple has one that's faster uh, and one that's slower. I mean, waiting on a spouse like maybe you'd love to be married. There are other things that you long for and, and wait on that aren't, that aren't certain. That, that job, that opportunity, that, that house. God has it in mind for you and I to be utterly certain concerning our future. Concerning what happens when we die. So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And so we're here this morning to encourage our hope for more eager waiting. Have you ever thought of church as that? Church isn't your you know, how-to YouTube video. Uh, so you know exactly what to do in the next seven days. Church is in the first place a refresh on your hope, a refresh for the encouragement of your hope and your confidence that Jesus is coming so that you might with each day between Sundays eagerly wait for him. Waiting. Waiting is different than doing. It's a form of doing. It's something that we do. But of all the things we do, a Christian life could be described as waiting. The best of the Christian life is awaiting for Jesus to come again. Now we're busy working for him and serving him and worshiping him, but we also just 
wait. Full of faith and full assurance of our hope at his coming. We may die first and meet him. That's just fine. And if we don't, he will come for us. Friends, you and I can wait on Christ with full assurance because he has rewritten our future with his blood. We're going to be talking about blood this morning. If you were to read the book of Hebrews and and offer to God one question, it might be, why the blood? It's weird. It's weird. That's a lot of blood. Do we need all that blood? Well, I hope and pray this morning to clarify for you what all that blood is doing on the pages of the Bible, why it's so important, and in clarifying the role of blood in our salvation to encourage your hope so that you might eagerly wait for Jesus. We've been building our vocabulary these last number of months in the book of Hebrews. Uh, The word covenant, new covenant, a covenant is a relationship founded on specific promises. And the Bible's story could be told as a story of God coming in covenant to his people. His covenant with Noah and creation. His covenant with Abraham and his offspring. His covenant with Israel at Sinai. The Davidic covenant with David and the new covenant. And these aren't all just different covenants, like false starts. They're related in a particular way, and they all together, each in their own way, lead to the new covenant that we're, we're here under in Jesus. And over time, as we work through different books of the Bible and different passages, we clarify the relationship of those covenants one to another. In the passages that we've been in the book of Hebrews, he speaks of the first covenant, and by that he's focusing on that covenant which dominated the story of the Old Testament, God's covenant with Israel at Sinai, and he speaks of a second or a new covenant, that covenant with Jesus. But covenant, that's a word that we've been, we've been wearing ourselves into, a relationship founded on specific promises. A mediator, we see here, therefore he's a mediator of a new covenant, and Jesus is a mediator. What's a mediator? It's a go-between, one who represents both parties in a relationship. Or high priest, these were the, the high priest could go into that most holy place. And the tent, hey, that's another word. The tent in the old covenant, this dwelling set up where God would meet with his people, the hot spot for his presence on earth. And then blood, which we'll talk about today. And today we get a new word in this book, mostly new in this passage, emphasized here at least, unpacked here at least, that is, a, that is the word inheritance. Inheritance. It took some amount of time to see that this section of Scripture is, for all that it's putting our attention on, past, present, future, Jesus in heaven and his blood on the cross and Old Testament things, is coming again, and that it's bookended with this reference to the promised eternal inheritance, and at the end, a reference to those who eagerly wait for him. If last week's, uh, three weeks ago, we've had two sermons since, but if the last week in Hebrews' passage um, focused us on the worship of God, the pure worship of God through purified consciences, 
then this passage fuels and strengthens and enriches that worship by assuring us that these hard times that we are undergoing now are temporary and we may be encouraged to eagerly wait for Jesus' coming even as we worship him with pure hearts now. Let's talk about inheritance. What kind of inheritance are we talking about here? You may think of inheritance as as that wealth or assets or property received on the death of a parent or a loved one who wills an inheritance to you. And that would be what we're talking about roughly, though not in exactly those circumstances. God has promised an inheritance, although it is not an inheritance that he gives gives to us when he gives it up because he dies. It's not exactly like our inheritance that we may pass along or receive. But you get the idea. It's, it's riches, it's wealth, it's, it's that which God gives to his children because they're his children at the right time. Well, let's meditate on this word inheritance with the sentence that we've got here in verse 15. This is, in the first place, an eternal inheritance. It's an eternal inheritance. Notice it's for those who have been called. In chapter 3, he speaks of those who are called according to a heavenly calling. It's an eternal inheritance, not a physical inheritance. J.I. Packer put this so beautifully. That hearts on earth may say in the course of a joyful experience... I don't want this ever to end, but invariably it does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. And there is no better news than this. Some of the advice you'll find on the internet concerning an inheritance, what happens if you get an inheritance? I read... Um, don't spend all your inheritance. In other words, careful now. You may have come into a windfall, but don't, don't blow it. Don't spend it all. Don't worry about that with this kind of inheritance. It'll go on forever. Everything good that you know in this life is but a foretaste and a glimmer of what will be ours And what will be ours will never end. This is our hope. Israel looked forward to a land. Indeed, land was promised to Abraham. Abraham was looking forward to more. He knew God had more in mind. Israel was moving into land, and that was on the horizon of their life as a nation where the Lord was leading them. And when the land was divided after the conquest in Joshua, different tribes received different inheritances, portions of the land. But there's a hint in how all of that went down that that geography wasn't the end game. And that is that the Levites, the tribe given to the worship of God and leading the people in the worship of God and, and sacrifices and such, they didn't get any land. So they got put up in your land. But we're told why they didn't get any land. 
They didn't get any land because the Lord was their inheritance. You see, greater than the physical land that would be given, even if that land was to be a kind of return to Eden, is a relationship with God. That's where it was all pointing. And God was teaching us this subtly, but clearly enough, that He is our inheritance. And as He is eternal, so He will give Himself to us, to each of you forever. There's enough of Him to go around. It doesn't get divided up like a pie. And there is enough for you and for me and for us all forever to enjoy. It's an eternal inheritance. And it's a promised inheritance. It says it right there. I'm backing up. I'm zooming out in the sentence. A promised eternal inheritance. And it's promised from God who promises it. And so it's, it's good. It's certain. He's made his promise and sealed it with an oath. As sure as the Lord Jesus is the eternal son come from heaven to die and been raised and is now seated enthroned as king is as sure as all that God has promised to each of us will, will come. And this promise is a promise of a restoration of what was lost in the garden. So even when God came to Abraham and promised land and blessing, sinners don't deserve this. We live under the curse and death. But God was bringing us back to himself. And this promised eternal inheritance is a return to what we had with the Father, with God in Eden, and very much better. It is the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham, and that's important to say as well. The readers of the book of Hebrews would have understood themselves as inheriting the promises made to Abraham. Hebrews 2.16, For surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Hebrews 6, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs, who were they, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarded it with an oath, guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for a God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, by faith Abraham obeyed and when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. And yet we're told that Abraham was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God, a better country even than that one right ahead of him. And how would it all come about that God would bless the children of Abraham and the nations through him and land and all of this? Well, the mystery of Christ is that when Christ comes all that God promised to Abraham 
and very much more than maybe we could have even ever imagined, comes to us who are believers in Jesus by faith. Jesus, the true son of Abraham, and we're true children of Abraham by faith in him. This is a promised inheritance, and it has been promised from ages past, and God will keep the promise to us. And promise is an important mechanism in the book of Hebrews. We live by believing in promises. We're saved by believing the promises of God. We're sustained by believing the promises of God. Several times in this series, I have pondered how I might use the illustration of a rope uh, to portray for you how holding fast to Jesus works. We have an assurance of our hope that leads us to hold fast. We hold fast our assurance. And so assurance in the book of Hebrews, and to you and to me through this book, isn't so much Be assured you'll get home as it is, be assured he will hold you, so hold fast to him. You see? And the greater your assurance in his promise, the greater your grip in hardship. When everyone else is saying, it's a joke, let go. What are you doing? A crucified man from 2,000 years ago. With that sexual ethic that's so dated, who believes this? Who lives that way? No, as your heart is filled up with assurance that he is king, that he is holding the rope, so you will hold fast to him. Hold fast. Be assured that the rope will hold. And I was pondering how I might do this and always decided to. And then John Piper did it for me. There was a little, you guys might have caught it on Facebook, a little Q&A with him. And he was asked, well, what's your favorite movie? He's like, oh, no, that's interesting, of course. He took him, took him back to when he was preaching Hebrews in the 80s or the 90s, I recall. Princess Bride. You remember when Wesley was climbing? Wesley was climbing the, uh, the cliff. Okay. It's the only serious scene in the movie. And Ego Montoya is standing at the top of the cliff and Wesley is climbing the cliff and he's going to fall down if he doesn't hold on. And Inigo at the top says... I could drop you a rope. And of course, Wesley replies, yeah. And then you would let go of the rope. You see, it matters who is holding the rope. Who's at the top? And a seriousness came over his face and he says, we all remember, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, that you will reach the top alive. And Wesley gets as serious and says, then drop the rope. You see? Very good rope illustration. I wish I had found it first. He doesn't get credit for a rope illustration. Rope's a rope. I thought of that. But the, uh, the Princess Bride is very good. Well, hopefully that will burn it in your mind as to how assurance and holding fast and all of this works. The greater your confidence in the Lord Jesus, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, orchestrating redemption and carrying it out, calling you to faith, exhorting you to hold fast. The greater your confidence in Him, the greater your hold. And you will persevere to the end if you will be filled with assurance of your faith. And my job week in, week out from this book is to fill you up with 
assurance so that you might hold fast. And there are some scary passages in this book that's meant to strike maybe a proper fear in us. But the dominant exhortation of this book is to hold fast, to not let go. And you will hold fast as you fix your eyes on Jesus and consider the assurance of his hold at the top. It's an eternal inheritance. It's a promised inheritance. It's a future inheritance. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, that what has been promised is ours, and that is true. And yet, God is not done yet. Even in this passage, Jesus is coming back, we've seen. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Our worship is right now the true worship of God, and we have inherited what God has promised. And yet, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations. Some have died in faith, having not received the things promised, and some of us may do that, having not received the fullness of the promise. We're told at the very end of the book, chapter 13, here, here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And here in the church and under the preaching of the word and even around this table, the future has broken into the present so that we can taste and see the goodness of the Lord and we know his kingdom and his reign and all of that. But isn't it encouraging to be told this isn't it? You've got it. That's encouraging. But it's also encouraging to be told he's coming to save. He's coming again to save those who are eagerly waiting for what? On him. So eagerly wait for him. It's a future inheritance. It's a mediated inheritance. Therefore, he's a mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. My kids on the playground when they were younger in in New Mexico, as I recall, there would be mediators assigned. So you've got the third grade playground, let's say, and there's some fifth graders that are real mature and they're mediators. So the mediators get to roam around the playground, and if you have a problem with another kid, you can go to a mediator and you can get some help. And I'd love to hear some of those conversations. <laughs> the mediator you know, helps each, other, each kid listen to the other and maybe negotiate some type of truce, some type of peace. Maybe they escalate it to a greater mediator, an adult. Not a bad idea. That's not exactly what we're talking about here. This isn't negotiation between between parties. Jesus is a go-between who perfectly represents us for he is, he is true humanity. Uh, but he represents God to us as the divine son. And he can enter God's presence for he is divine and he is spotless. He is without sin. And he can bring us with him as we'll see because he goes with something. Jesus is a greater mediator than angels who would have brought the word of God. That's a form of mediation. Or Moses who 
to whom God spoke and gave his word. That's a form of a mediator. Or priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of men to God, and that's a form of mediation. But Jesus, he's the mediator we need. He gets it all done. He is utterly unique. So what kind of inheritance are we talking about here? Well, those are four reflections on the type of inheritance we're talking about. Now, next question. Does God have his affairs in order? It's kind of a cheeky question. Because when we think about somebody having their affairs in order, we mean, you know, they're going to die, and so is all the paperwork together, and are the legal things clear, and does everyone know where everything's going, and who's to do what, and, and are the affairs in order? Is this stuff summarized on a few, on a few pages somewhere? It was my first experience pastoring uh, a family through a, a death and a funeral, and it was actually for a member of our community. Some members in our church had neighbors. Um, I forget her name. Let's call her Kate. But the, the husband's name was Bill. And they asked if I could come visit with, with Bill. He was in his home, and she was in a nursing home. I got to visit with the two of them. And they weren't well, and they were dying, and they were unbelieving neighbors. These are neighbors who didn't know the Lord. They were very, very old. And they had entrusted to our church members the management of their estate. Um, They were estranged from their children. Their children, maybe one or several children, but had left them and were off the grid and not in the picture. And the only people that they had around that they would trust with their, their property and things were these church members of ours, good people. Um, And when Bill died, uh, Kate was at the nursing home and visited with her and headed to the funeral to remember Bill and to preach the word and then to to bury Bill that day. And funeral was to start at 10 o'clock and she wasn't there. She was to have a driver. A son was coming in. Uh, and it's 10.10. It's 10.20. And there's a handful of folks from the nursing home who were caring for Kate there. And then we got word that the son had picked up mom and headed for Texas. I feel like kidnapped his mom. Um, And so that was my first encounter with a family that didn't quite have their things in order, (laughs) their affairs in order. No doubt he was seeking to manipulate the circumstance for earthly inheritance gain, get her to sign some things, all that. As it is, my friend said, he's going to be surprised that there really isn't much there. But that's okay. Well, there are helps for you if you need to get your affairs in order. There are websites that will tell you what to do and how to get about it. There are attorneys that can explain to you how things work. That's a little bit of what our passage does. It's a bit perplexing and confusing as you read it here. But our passage gives us some of the, the the backdrop, the legal context for our inheritance. It's helpful to know how it works. How does the legal stuff work? Who does what? How can I know the papers are good? 
That's something of what this passage does for us. Explaining the legalities. And it gives to us the assurance that yes, God has made all of the necessary arrangements in order for us to secure this inheritance. And so as he goes about this and even belabors it, and I won't read it exactly, but I will relay it for you, it ought to strengthen our assurance and our hope so that we might eagerly wait for him to know how it works that his blood has purchased our inheritance. And there's an interesting, I'll just show you, a, I'll call it pretty, a pretty structural feature in our text. If you look at chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, now, um, let's see, oh, excuse me, I did not mark them on this version of my Bible passage. Oh, here it is. Verse 24. For when Christ has entered not into the holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear. So verse 11, Christ has appeared. Now now he's gone into heaven now to appear in the presence of God, in the present, interceding for us. Verse 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's got, even in the way this is unfolded here, he's got all of this taken care of. He's made all of the arrangements. All of it. I'll zoom in now at about verse 16 and following. And that past, present, and future will be reflected in the work that we're about, about to do. The Lord Jesus has shown up here and he has offered He's offered himself. He's offered himself. We even see that in the verses just before our passage, but then in verse 26, he's appeared once at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In this section here, verse 16 through 22, get behind the scenes for why he had to show up and sacrifice himself. Why he had to shed his blood for us. And there are two reasons in the first place. To ratify the covenant, the new covenant, with all of its blessings. And to purify us from our sins. You'll notice in verse 16 he says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant has been inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool, sprinkled both the book and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. Some say, and they might be right, that with this word will here, which is the same word as covenant, that the author has shifted from talking about covenants in the context of the story of redemption, now to talking about a legal arrangement in the first century that the first century Roman readers would have, would have understood. 
Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Where a will takes effect, and it kind of what he's describing kind of sounds like it could be that. But that word will translated is the translator's decision. And like I said, it may well just be right. But it has some problems in that the author has been speaking in thoroughly biblical terms and thoroughly biblical categories. And it seems a little unusual that for two verses here, he would shift gears and speak about present day to his readers, legal categories for a a will. And even in the way that it would apply seems a little forced to me. But some of the work that's been done in recent years on ancient Near East covenants to understand how they worked a little better has helped us with this. And my take, and I'm not alone in this, but is that he's just referring to how covenants worked. So you can turn with me to... Genesis chapter 15. We'll do a little bit of work and then we'll be able to appreciate Christ's work a little better. He's taken, God has taken Abraham outside and promised him descendants like the stars of the sky. In verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other two sides, a bunch of cut pieces of these animals. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. There's something going on here. Stay away. And the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. So he's asleep now. And behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go up to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This covenant ceremony is what it's called. You think of a covenant of marriage, there's vows and there's a ring, there's a concept, there's all kinds of things going on. There's, there's a signature of a marriage license. And those don't all happen in the exact moment. But this right here is tied to God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12 and, and his repetition of his promise in the subsequent chapters that he'll make Abraham's name great, he'll give him great descendants, and he'll bless all the nations, families of the earth through him. So what's up with all this, with cutting the animals in half and putting Abram to sleep and a fire pot going through it? What is that? It's a covenant 
cutting ceremony. It was typically when a covenant was made between two parties. Animals are cut and blood is splashed on both parties as a sign that each party must keep their part of the covenant on pain of death. They've bound themselves to each other by covenant. And they want to be in covenant. But it comes with responsibility and commitment and devotion. The illustration that the author of Hebrews gives here from the Sinaitic covenant with Israel, he says, even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, not inaugurated without blood. Every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to the people. Then he took blood of calves and goats, sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying this is the blood of the covenant. And he, he gave blessings and cursings. If you obey, there will be blessings. If you, you disobey and are unfaithful, there will be cursings. And that blood sprinkled on both parties, the book, but then also on the people, was a sign that total devotion was required and death would be the consequence for breaking covenant. What's well, interesting about the Abrahamic ceremony is that one of the parties is sleeping. And the fire pot that goes through is the Lord saying, I'll keep both sides. And if this promise is not fulfilled by me, then cut me up into these pieces. In other words, if you fail at your half, I'll suffer the consequences, but I will keep this promise. How beautiful a promise of grace is that in such a, an ancient and foreign and strange ceremony. Now, the animals cut in two are a symbol of what we say we'll get if we disobey, but Abraham is sleeping when it happens. So this is what the author is doing here of, of Hebrews. He's saying, listen, Covenants involve a death, representing the death of each of the party in the possibility of disobedience. And, and blood was sprinkled on the book and on the people. This is the book of the covenant that God commanded for you. So it's, the blood is for the ratification of a covenant. When Jesus sprinkles his blood on us, when he sheds his blood, he, even around the table, when he says this is the blood of the covenant, he is going to give himself, he is taking on the consequences for our disobedience and our faithlessness. And in that way, he's fulfilling God's promise way back in Genesis 15. Cut me in half if you're unfaithful. But I'm going to be faithful. And Jesus was cut in half, if you will. He shed his blood because you and I don't bring the obedience and devotion to this covenant relationship that it requires. God keeps his promise and he offers to himself the obedience that he requires. That's the good news. If you're a Christian, it's not because you've offered obedience to God and he rewards you with this promise of salvation, it's because you trusted in Jesus who has offered obedience on your behalf. And his shed blood is his obedience. He obeyed even to the point of 
death. And this is not different, what is being said here, than what we hear in Romans, for example, chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but you may recognize these words. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Only next week we'll hear that that there was a constant reminder of sin through the old covenant. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's a way to get saved apart from the law, through the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He'd passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God accepts you, sinner, if your faith is in Jesus, but not because you're good. And not because you bring anything good, but because he has offered himself and his own goodness and his own righteousness. And so God remains perfectly just and perfectly righteous and takes you and me in, which doesn't make any sense, except that there was blood shed, a death for us in our place. Back to the book of Hebrews. Jesus showed up here. He appeared. He came to offer up himself. And he also showed up in heaven itself. Verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus goes into the very presence of the Father on our behalf. The high priest would go into that holy place on earth once a year, and he would get out representing us. Well, Jesus goes on our behalf. And we can pray and be received by God because Jesus is interceding for us. He is perfectly accepted and we're with him. And he says, they're with me. And so when you and I pray, as we will this afternoon and as we will at the end of the sermon, and as we will quietly as we examine ourselves around the table, we're actually heard. Our prayers aren't bouncing off heaven. They're not rejected because of our sin. And that's because of his blood. And that's because Jesus not only came and appeared here, but because he appears now in heaven. Jesus showed up here. He offered himself. He showed up in heaven itself on our behalf. And with this confidence and because of this, you and I can be sure that he will show up here again and he will save all those who entrust themselves to his blood. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, for that is dealt with, 
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So because of Jesus' high priestly work in coming and in going, you and I can eagerly wait through whatever hardship, through whatever mockery, through whatever loss, because the inheritance that is promised to us is as sure as his coming and his going. He will come for us to save. And so a final question, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Do you fear death? Do you fear the judgment of God? Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, that's a given. Reincarnation is just a creative way to get out of that. That humans have eternity in their heart and the consciences that are guilty and seek to solve and to solve that problem and that tension in a variety of ways and and coming back to do better or coming back to get punished for what I've done in this life. That's something we've made up. And it has it has a market. Or this thought that that, uh, that we would be annihilated. We're just gone forever. Well, we die once, Scripture says, and after that comes the judgment. Even if the messaging around us doesn't concern the afterlife, and no commercial is going to talk to you about judgment after your death, you're not getting that from anywhere, but here on the Lord's Day, and in your own Bibles, it's true. Do you fear death and judgment? You do not have to fear death. And judgment. If you're in Christ, you must not. You need not fear death and judgment. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus to be your substitute, his shed blood, his death for yours, then you're invited to come and entrust yourself to him so that you don't have to fear death and judgment because he's died in your place. Addressed reincarnation and the materialistic worldview, but even versions of Christianity are problems. You think of the Catholic Mass with, with its weekly re-sacrifice of Christ. That's what it is. It's a re-sacrifice of Christ for your newer, more current sins, which were not covered by His one sacrifice, which is unbiblical and satanic for various reasons, including the fact that there is no blood with this re-sacrifice, but you can't have atonement without blood. But even Scripture says right here, and it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So the message of the Bible is not that you can graciously receive forgiveness to a point and then come back for more grace that you need later for more forgiveness, is that Jesus' cross and death covers all of your sins so that you have full forgiveness, which feels a little risky for me to say because then you might just go out and do whatever you want. But that's not what the Bible says you'll do if you really know this forgiveness because with the full forgiveness you get a new heart. And your conscience is clean not to do whatever you want with it, but to worship and serve the true and living God. 
Not without sin in this life, of course, but truly and with a clear conscience. So that's what we've gathered to do. Do you fear death and judgment or are you waiting on him? Christian, two things to do. Lay hold of Jesus by faith and with a purified conscience, worship and serve our great God. He is a consuming fire. He's worth, worth all of our worship. Israel looked at the blood of the covenant and had the threat of death and those consequences right before her, which signaled the seriousness of this relationship with God and how serious he was about the relationship. And she disobeyed and broke covenant and suffered for it. You and I will sit around this table and remember Jesus' blood with the symbol of this cup. And that too is a cup that symbolizes judgment for sin. But judgment poured out on Christ. And it's a cup that doesn't just signalize, symbolize judgment. For it doesn't come with a threat for us, but it comes with open arms for us. It comes with the promise of forgiveness for that judgment has fallen on the Lord Jesus. And for all these reasons, we can eagerly wait for him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word. And we praise you for your Son's blood shed on the cross for us. He took the curse for our disobedience on himself and he offered the obedience that we owed you in his life and his obedience unto death. He took our sins and their penalty through his death and he offered up his obedience through his life and his obedient death. And our hope is in this. And because he appeared once and because he has appeared and appears now before now in heaven, so we can be assured that he will appear once again to come and to get us. And we give you thanks and praise for making all of the arrangements for those whom you have called. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.